Welcome to Country Capitalism, How Corporations from the American South Remade Our Economy and the Planet. Brought to you by the History Department and the College of Arts and Sciences at The Ohio State University and the magazine Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective. My name is Nick Breifogel. I'm an Associate Professor of History and Director of the Goldberg Center for Excellence in Teaching, and I'll be your host and moderator today. Welcome to everyone, and thank you for joining us. Today, we are privileged to welcome world-renowned historian Bart Elmore, who will talk to us about the impact of the American South on the interconnected histories of business and ecological change. He'll use the histories of five Southern firms, Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, Walmart, FedEx, and Bank of America, to investigate the environmental impact of our have-it-now, fly-by-night, buy-on-credit global economy. Drawing on exclusive interviews with company executives, corporate archives, and other records, Elmore will lay out for us today the historical, economic, and ecological, and ecological conditions that gave rise to these five trailblazing, trailblazing corporations. He then considers what each has become, an essential presence in the daily workings of the global economy, and an unmistakable contributor to the reshaping of the world's ecosystems. Even as businesses invest in sustainability initiatives and respond to new calls for corporate responsibility, Elmore will point to the limits of their efforts to green their operations and offer insights on how governments and activists can push the corporations to do better. Let's take a moment to get to know our speaker. Bart Elmore studies the past to understand how we can live more sustainably on this planet. A native of Atlanta, Georgia, Bart is Professor of Environmental History and a core member of the Sustainability Institute at The Ohio State University. He's the author of the book Citizen Coke, The Making of Coca-Cola Capitalism from 2015, a global ecological history of the world's biggest soft drink brand from his hometown. From 2016 to 2018, he was a Carnegie Fellow at the New America Foundation in Washington, D.C., and he finished his second book in 2021, Seed Money, Monsanto's Past and the Future of Food. And this has led him to the book he'll be talking about today, Country Capitalism. Uh, I should also note that he was one of the recipients of the, fir uh, of the first uh, Dan David Prize uh, for historians. With that introduction, let me mention the plan. Professor Elmore will open up with a presentation on the history of how the rural roads that led to our planet-changing global economy ran through the American South. And then he'll take your questions and we'll open things up for discussion. If you're interested in asking a question, please write it in the Q&A uh, function at the bottom of your screen on Zoom. We'll do our best to answer as many questions as we can, and we've, rece we've received several in advance. We'd also like to acknowledge, uh, we'd also like to take a moment to acknowledge uh, that the land the Ohio State University occupies is the ancestral and contemporary territory of the Shawnee, Potawatomi, Delaware, Miami, Peoria, Seneca, Wyandotte, Ojibwe, and Cherokee peoples. Specifically, the university resides on land ceded in the 1795 Treaty of Greenville and the forced removal of tribes through the Indian Removal Act of 1830. We want to honor the resiliency of these tribal nations and recognize the historical context that have and continue to affect the indigenous peoples of this land. Now, 
Let me pass you over to Professor Bart Elmore, who will take us on an exploration of country capitalism. Over to you, Professor Elmore. Thanks a lot, Nick. This is such a pleasure to be with everybody. And I'm going to pull up the slide deck here um, as we begin this journey to understand the history of the American South and its place in the larger economy in our planet. And what a pleasure it is to, to just get to connect and to talk about this book with, with you all. I think it's one of the best parts about writing a book is getting to have conversations about the research and interviews that you've done. This was a project that took several years to complete, but in so many ways was one that started uh, for me as a young kid growing up in Atlanta, Georgia, as Nick mentioned, and um, seeing these this kind of radical change in our economy and in our global economy uh, that also had pretty big environmental impacts. I can remember as a kid growing up in the 80s and 90s in Atlanta, you know, coming down Interstate 75, 85 through town and uh, seeing the orange smog alerts that indicated to me, even as a young person, that we were kind of living in a system that was slightly out of balance. And I think um, I spent a lot of time as a young kid also in the up, out, outdoors of, of the American South. I, I went up to the Appalachian Trail in North Georgia. I became a big whitewater paddler. And part of that was because it was a it was an escape from the, you know, the bustling city that I that I grew up in. And but I think those experiences gave me an appreciation for the environment, made me want to become ultimately years later an environmental historian. And um and to tell these stories that you see in the book. So for me, in a way, this is a this is a book, Country Capitalism, that's about going home. And um, it it was something I might have written years ago, but finally had the opportunity to do so recently. So I'll try and unpack how we got to this whole story uh, and, and why these companies, you know, one of the things that happened when I went off to grad school was I, I I studied the history of the American South very closely. I went to the University of Virginia and um, was interested in actually the history of Southern public schools. I had taught at public schools in the American South and had been really struck by the lack of resources and the kind of um, the condition of a lot of these schools. And so I went to kind of understand how Jim Crow, how segregation, how race and inequality helped to shape the world in which I grew up in. And through that process, I found this field of environmental history that now Nick and I belong to. It's a field that goes back to the 1970s, started as a response to the modern environmental movement. If we're going to write history, we, we might want to think about how nature is a part of all these stories, not only shaping the course of human events, but also being shaped by human action and therefore in, in, in ways shaping history in a kind of cyclical way. And I was hooked. So I, I began exploring the history of the American South from an environmental angle. And this book is a product of that, looking at five Southern companies that had an outsized influence on our economy and our planet. When I studied the history of the American South, just to think about why these companies, why talk about Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, Walmart, FedEx, and Bank of America, I was picking companies that, well, 
certainly wasn't cherry picking. I was trying to see what were some of the largest corporations that came out of the South, Walmart being the largest corporation in the world at one point in the story, Delta Airlines being the largest airline at one point in the world, Bank of America being at one point the largest bank in the world, uh, now headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina. FedEx, of course, revolutionized Air Express delivery coming out of Memphis, Tennessee. Coca-Cola, of course, needs no introduction. You can even see the Spencerian script here on the on the uh, cover of the, of the book is meant to suggest that almost everyone knows the Coke brand. But the question was to say, what's missing from the story of the history of the American South and the economy? And it turned out to me that we were missing a lot of stories about retail, aviation, finance, in which Southern companies played a big role. And shaping the contours of, of those industries. If you don't buy the book and just want to kind of know the big takeaway, I, I think the, the main finding of the book was that the rural roads to our Amazon, and I put Amazon in quote, economy, went straight through the American South. And that in fact, when we think about Jeff Bezos and the Amazon economy on which we all depend now, this kind of express delivery, fast, quick, internet enabled commerce, that in fact, it has roots in a Southern economy. And so that's what I wanna to explore today and not talk not only about those roots, but also about the ecological implications of all that. And I'll start, I won't talk about each of the companies, but I will offer three examples from the book that. I think are illuminating. As anyone does when they're writing their third book, I, I actually went back to a company I'd already written about to start the book. And I, I focused on the history of Coca-Cola, which you can see here on the cover of Time Magazine in 1950. What a, what a telling photo here, representative of the fact that Coke had become a truly global brand, you know, force feeding the world a spelt, I don't know, eight, six ounce Coca-Cola. And Coke had really made it on the global stage. And in fact, if you think about it today, it's a company that's been able to find its way into the smallest niche markets that you can possibly imagine. In fact, I would challenge all of you just to think and look around you how far away you are from a Coca-Cola product. Um, you know, the, the goal that Robert Woodruff, who ran the company in the 1920s all the way through the 1980s, he was called the boss of the company name was Robert Woodruff. He actually went to my high school. Um, talk about the personal connections to these stories. He said in the 20s that he wanted Coca-Cola to be, quote, within arm's reach of desire. And boy, I think uh, they may not have achieved that entirely, but it's pretty darn close today. No matter where you are, you can get a cold Coke almost instantaneously. And that was the model that Coca-Cola pushed that became in some ways the envy of other industries. This ubiquity, not only in cities and urban areas, but the ability to get your product into the smallest rural countryside markets, which is why I call this book Country Capitalism, because what unites all of these firms is that they saw the countryside, they saw rural or less urban areas as an asset to business growth, not as a hindrance to it, but something that if you could figure out how to get your products there, you could really revolutionize the global economy and then the world. And they wrote about this. That term country is, I think, a contested term, and I understand that. 
But if you go back to the archives, people inside Coca-Cola say this very deliberately. If we can just get this in the country, then boy, could this be a big business. And they figured out how to do it. Here is the uh, entire salary staff of Coca-Cola in the 1890s. The entire salaried staff on the front steps of the headquarters of Coca-Cola. And it's a remarkable picture, not only because it shows you part of the stories that are uncovered in this book of Jim Crow and the fact that segregation, even in these images, you can see a black employee here kind of segregated even in this image from the rest of the uh, the establishment here. Here you can see Asa Candler, who is the uh, person who incorporated Coca-Cola in the uh, 1890s. I think this is Frank Robinson here who helped to create that Spencerian script that we all now depend on uh, to, to identify Coke products for us. But this was in the heart of the Jim Crow era when the, the strictest and, and most retrograde social institutions were being adopted in the American South. And you can see that even in this image, uh, black employees in this case often were doing the hardest and hottest work inside these factories that were cooking the syrup in kettles and, and, and in some ways a very uh, intensive and, and labor intensive work. Um, but this is the entire salaried staff. And I think it tells you something about the reach of this company, even in the 1890s. They're already by this point in every single state in the entire country. And they've done this by creating a very sleek and nimble business strategy by remaining at arm's length from much of the cost associated with producing and distributing their product. What made Coke great over the years was that it didn't own things. It really figured out to, how to develop a business strategy that was all about kind of being a broker in the economy, a middleman. Yes, they made syrup, but they didn't own sugar plantations in the Caribbean that provided them the sugar they needed. They didn't own decaffeination plants that would provide the caffeine for this company, even though it became the largest consumer of caffeine on the planet. And I should say the largest consumer of sugar on the planet by the 19 teens. Rather, it remained at arm's length. And, and so true, so too on the distribution end of the business. It didn't own its bottlers. Instead, it relied on independent bottlers all around the country who, who took out loans. In the early years, that was about $2,000 to $3,000 to build their own bottling plants. And there they would pay for the trucks and the workers and even the water. 80% of the finished product was something not sourced by Coca-Cola. It was provided by the distributors themselves. Robert Woodruff would recognize that this model was valuable when he took over the company in the 1920s saying, you know, you can make a lot of money. This is one of his quotes, as long as you don't care who gets the credit. And you see this model here working in the sense that you have a fairly small salaried staff and yet they're operating all the way around the country in part because they're using this independent franchise system ultimately to help spread this product. Now, this was right before bottling. Bottling is going to take off. Most of Coca-Cola is being actually sold as syrup to soda fountains in the, those early years, the 1890s. But that bottling system, again, where bottlers paid for the trucks and the bottles and all this meant that you could spread even faster and into the countryside, into rural areas and, and hit those markets and expand your business at a rapid pace. So I start with Coke because I think they modeled a system 
of of finding ways to to make money in rural places to to make that a kind of mantra of its business that ubiquity that arm's length of desire that you you could argue is the kind of model of amazon today in terms of that instant gratification buy it you got it right there at your door but of course this kind of instant gratification has big costs and i think in each chapter the goal was to try and think about what are some of the big costs we don't think about when it comes to that arm's length of desire model. And in Coke's case, I'd written a lot about the environmental history of Coke in another book I'd written, but I had not focused on the story of refrigeration. And here you can see a big, big story. It turns out that Coke's single largest impact on climate change comes from its global warming chemicals that are used in its refrigeration and the energy that's used to refrigerate all those Cokes everywhere. And note that history matters here. I don't think you can solve the sustainability problems of the future without using history, because what you see in the 20s is this mantra of arm's length of desire. Coke needs to be cold. Think about all those signs some of you may remember written on and painted on the main streets of America. Cold Coke, five cents. That cold, which we may take as a grant for granted, didn't have to be so, right? Coke can actually keep very well. It's very acidic. You can leave it on a shelf. In fact, you can buy it at Kroger in many cases when it's not cold. But the point for this company was to find ways to make sure Coke was cold and available to be drunk immediately at the point of sale, even in the smallest rural markets. But that keeping Coke cold on every corner store in every rural town has a huge footprint. And it became 35% of their total greenhouse gas emissions, their single largest contribution to climate changes from refrigeration. And so I, in this chapter, I trace out the story of how Coca-Cola used HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, beginning in the 1990s when chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, were banned because they were causing a hole in the ozone layer. Coke, like many companies, switched to HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, which had a global warming potential a thousand times higher than carbon dioxide, which we think of as the quintessential greenhouse gas. But it turns out that HFCs are a thousand times more potent as a greenhouse gas. And when they switched to HFCs, they were having a huge impact on global warming as these chemical compounds leaked from their machinery or when the machines were retired, you know, ending up in the atmosphere and causing major climate issues. Of course, the electricity was part of this too, keeping all those refrigerators on 24 seven, 365 days a year. But what I was able to do was get inside the company, talk to the former chief sustainability officer of Coca-Cola, the engineers who worked on refrigeration. And you'll see that story in the book. And what's fascinating is how they tried, they were told, uh, and they admit in the book, that there were other options available in the 1990s, other than HFCs. In fact, and this may surprise you, the option that most people proposed were hydrocarbons, isobutane, for example, which could be much less of a global warming potential impact. But um, there was another issue with that, which is that it was flammable. And while Germany and other manufacturers and more uh, kind of countries that were pushing for environmental regulations did switch to isobutane and hydrocarbons in their refrigeration units, 
Koch balked at it, in part because of country capitalism. The engineers made it clear to me that they were concerned that if they put isobutane or hydrocarbons in their refrigeration units in rural communities where there weren't a lot of technicians that could handle and maintain those machines, they might explode because isobutane and these chemicals are flammable, unlike HFCs. So it turns out that operating in rural areas represented a hindrance to Coca-Cola in terms of which type of refrigerant they were using. One that had a much bigger global warming potential was HFCs, but they saw it as less dangerous given that they were operating in more country markets. Now, I talk about how they switched ultimately in the 2000s to try and begin in part because of Greenpeace, which you see here pushing Coca-Cola to get rid of their HFC coolers. They began to switch to, if you can believe it, CO2-based refrigerators that use carbon dioxide as their chief refrigerant over time, and then ultimately switching to isobutane and other hydrocarbons once the technology they felt was safe enough for them to use. And that's what Coke has done. They've begun switching away from HFCs in recent years, but they've had a huge environmental impact just because of trying to keep cold in all these different markets. And one of the things you'll see in the book is an exchange between me and the former chief sustainability officer of Coca-Cola, where I say, did you ever consider, you know, maybe not what refrigerants to put in your refrigerators, but whether you should have those refrigerators in every market turned on? In other words, might you rethink this mantra of arm's length of desire? Could you may have radical greenhouse gas savings just by not having Coke cool in every single market and thinking about where you really need things to be cool and where potentially you know, a consumer could take that home or buy it and purchase it and bring it back. These things, by the way, were seen as kind of non-starters in the conversation. But I believe for those of us who think about sustainability in a, in a hard way, there are huge gains that could be made there just by questioning, does Coke need to be cold in all these different markets? Now, the second part of this book looks at a logistics revolution that was happening in retail. And my second example I wanna give you before I, I go to the third is the history of Walmart, which started in the small town of Bentonville, Arkansas and Northwest Arkansas. And uh, the first Walmart big box store was launched in 1962. And I show you this picture because environment is all about it. The ecosystem of the American South, it turns out, helped to nurture some of the most advanced logistics innovations that our economy has ever seen. And here you can see the 1981 Walmart shareholders meeting on Sugar Creek, which is just north of the town of Bentonville, Arkansas, where Walmart was founded and where it's headquartered currently. It's a small town in Northwest Arkansas. And you can see Sam Walton here, who's in, well, it's confusing. If you're a paddler as I am, uh, you'll notice that the canoe is actually turned the wrong way. So even though Sam Walton's in the back, he's actually sitting backwards in the canoe. No matter. The point here is that Sam Walton is here with his wife, Helen, who's at the front. And um, it's telling because this is what Sam Walton wanted. He wanted to bring these analysts from New York, these investors, and, and they had a camp out on this creek for their shareholders meeting. But he loved that. He believed that the rural nature of Bentonville was what made Walmart what it was. In fact, he loved to wear these truckers hats, you know, as a symbol of that kind of connection to rural America. Uh, he was the youngest Eagle Scout, according to his friend, to, to earn an Eagle Scout honor from the Boy Scouts in Missouri when he was a young kid. 
He loved to camp, but so did Helen. And they took these analysts out on this uh, this camp out. And the Wall Street Journal writing about this couldn't understand it. You know, how is it that such a big company could come out of such a rural place? Sam Walton loved this, of course. He didn't like the fact that most of the folks got really drunk because they were afraid of the coyotes and the snakes. And the uh, I think there was an owl that hooted at night and everyone got kind of freaked out. And uh, apparently they drank to try and deal with their anxiety. And, 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 and forever after this, actually, Walmart shareholders meetings were dry. And if you talk to any of the executives, they, they lament this, that you know most of the shareholders meeting became a lot, lot less fun, uh, in part because of the failure of this camping trip. But the point here is that you see in this image a really important story, that the environment mattered when it came to shaping Walmart. The whole reason that Sam Walton and Helen Walton are in Bentonville in the first place, which is this in the Ozarks, in the hill country there, in these more rural community, is because Helen loved the outdoors. She told Sam Walton, who worked for J.C. Penney and wanted to go make it big in retail, in the big cities, maybe Chicago. She said, we're not moving there. We've got to go to a place that has access to the outdoors because I love the outdoors and I'm not moving with you to some big city. And Sam Walton, who was a big hunter and a quail hunter, they connected on this and he agreed. They picked Bentonville in part because he talked about it. He said, I could get great quail hunting in four different states in that location. In other words, the reason they're there and are going to create this empire where they are is in part by their own environmental interests in a place that's not so urban, not so, um, you know, a, a city landscape. And yet it turns out that being in Bentonville mattered. Here you can see it just in case to kind of orient yourself in Northwest Arkansas here. This is the Ozarks, the hill country of the Ozarks there, winding roads, hilly country. That was the key to what made Walmart different. Right down to the strategy for how Sam Walton went about his business. He would drive around on these roads to his little stores. They were Butler Brothers, little five and dimes when he was just getting started in the 1950s. And he said in his biography, he talked a lot about the environment. He said, I got tired of driving around, as you can see the cursor here, going back and forth on these little roads. And he would get kind of car sick, probably going on these winding roads through these, these hills that he ended up getting his pilot's license. And that was a huge deal because in the 1960s, he was up in the air and flying around as the interstate highway system that you see here was being built. He was able to see that growth was moving outwards and that you could get ahead of the growth and build a store where you could become the market and see the market developing from the air. He said he was about two decades ahead of many retailers in seeing the retail landscape from the air. But if it weren't for the hill country of the Ozarks, he wouldn't have been up in the air looking at retail that way. And the key thing for, for Sam Walton is that he figured looking at this road networks and seeing it from the air that he could cite these big box stores with tens of thousands of square feet in towns that had 2000 people in it. That's what made Walmart different, folks from uh, Target in Minneapolis, or if you go up to Kmart in Detroit, they both started the big box stores like Kmart and Target, which was part of Dayton Goods Store in Minneapolis. They start the same year as Walmart, 1962, when the first big box store is of uh, Walmart is created in Rogers, Arkansas, which is right next to Bentonville. 
1962 is the year that Target and Kmart and Walmart all launched. The difference was that they weren't looking at these rural markets. They didn't think you could go into a town of 4,000, 5,000 people and generate millions of dollars in revenue. You don't have enough people. I mean, how are you going to do that? But Walton saw it. He saw that people could drive 50, 60 miles. If you if you provided cheap enough goods from those little towns, they'll come into the to your Mecca that is Walmart and come back out to, to their homes. They'll drive far distances to those retail centers. And he proved that you could have this big box model in rural America. But what's key to the story here is that that led to a logistics revolution. Because Walton pointed to geography as the key factor that helped Walmart develop its winning way. He says this, we were forced to be ahead of our time in distribution and communication, developing satellite systems that were state-of-the-art, computer networks that would allow them to, to be able to sophisticatedly uh, service all those rural small towns in vast networks across very distant uh, uh, distances. They had to be ahead of their time in terms of logistics and technology and computer systems. Because as he puts it here, our stores were sitting out there in tiny little towns and we had to stay in touch and keep them supplied. Folks, when Jeff Bezos, and I'll come back to this in a second, starts to create Amazon, he flies to Bentonville because he knows that this is the company that's figured out the logistics uh, and from a computer and satellite system technology to get goods into the small, smallest rural markets. But it wouldn't have happened but for the geography, but for the rurality of Bentonville in the first place. Watch what, Wal watch what Walmart does. See, it doesn't bump, bump out into those bigger cities. It starts in the small towns of the American South and Midwest, and it grows, boom, out from that center. And yes, by the 1990s, it's going to become a truly national brand in the sense that it's in every single state. You can see that Vermont, whoop, there it is, is the last state to hold out. They had uh, they'd fought hard, Vermonters did, including Ben and Jerry's, uh, Ben and, and Jerry of, of, of the ice cream dynasty fought really hard to prevent Walmart from coming in in the 1990s. But you'll see um, around 1996, 97, those Walmarts are going to be cited there. Um, so rurality was an asset. And in fact, Sam Walton would say in his biography, he said, you know, one of the things that made us great is we were just hiding out there in those hills. You know, we were away from the competition. And, and you can see it here, just growing while people thought, nah, I don't think that's a great market. It turns out that it was the prime market for that kind of retail model. And, and then, of course, it became, becomes this national brand. The problem, and I'll talk about uh, from the environmental angle, is that it was very hard to for our laws, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, to regulate Walmart. Most of the things that Walmart gets regulated for is, you know, the size of their parking lots and the runoff stormwater from their parking lots and things like that. When the bigger environmental impact that Walmart's having is this coarse transnational global network of trade that our laws can't really regulate. You know, there's not a really good way of trying to assess Walmart's larger environmental footprint that comes from all the cargo traffic that comes from across the globe, largely with China, that that Walmart's involved in. And one of the things I'm suggesting in this book is we need new laws that recognize the power of Walmart and Amazon that might regulate these conduits of capitalism a bit more effectively. 
All right. And I, I think I'm, I'm going to be running up on time. So let me finish with FedEx. This is my last example from the book. When we think about the American South at the center of a logistics revolution that changed the world. Um, if you don't know, FedEx was started in Memphis, Tennessee in, 19, uh, in the 1970s. And it was started by a guy named Fred Smith. Um, interestingly, I was able to get an interview with Fred Smith, actually his son, but through him, I, I was able to get a contact via email and I can come back to that in our conversation if you're interested. But here's a company that really revolutionized Air Express delivery operating out of the American South. And it's no surprise why they were in Memphis. They chose this location on purpose because they saw it as the center of gravity of the small package market. Yes, you had big airlines that were going from New York to San Francisco and you know big planes that were going overnight to different places. But in terms of the middle of the country and especially that small package market, you didn't really have that, that kind of infrastructure in place. You needed a air express delivery system to be created that was servicing those places. And you can think about today, if you live in a small town or small community, you can often get a FedEx truck into your town. FedEx loves to have these pictures of mountains and rural roads as part of their branding because they can get things almost anywhere. But that was deliberate that it be in Memphis because of where it was located. It could get to the West Coast. It could get goods from the West Coast, but it could also get it into these markets that perhaps we're not getting the same type of traffic, air traffic, that these other big cities were getting. And it was very deliberate that it was in Memphis. The environment matters here. They looked at different sites for their hub for this model, and they thought, well, maybe Chicago. The problem is you've got ice up in Chicago. That makes it very difficult to have that hub and spoke model. If you're looking um, from the south, they wanted to be far enough north that they weren't getting hit by increasingly, you know, as we think about climate change, the hurricanes and tropical storms. Memphis was deliberately chosen because of the environmental factors and because of its geographic factors and being able to hit certain markets uh, in the middle of the country. And it was a hub and spoke model. You know, the idea here is that if you were sending a package from Charleston, West Virginia, I don't know, to, um, you know, maybe uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina, it went this way, Charleston to Memphis by 11 p.m. at night. It was then sorted, what's called the sort, at the big hub in Memphis onto another plane, and then it would go out to wherever, Spartanburg or Greenville. Now, you can think about this from an ecological standpoint and think about the greenhouse gas footprint of sending goods this way and then this way. But it was a model that made sense economically. And it was a model that you'll see in the book that was built on another company, Delta Airlines, that started in Atlanta, Georgia, that created that hub and spoke model that probably drives most of us crazy whenever you land in Atlanta, Georgia, and you've got to hustle through that airport. That model of hub and spoke, let's bring them into one big city and then bring them out to the major metropolitan areas, that was... Delta was a pioneer in that in the commercial aviation age, uh, 1955. They were the ones that really kind of modeled that hub and spoke model. And why? Because they were operating in the South. So to get enough traffic in these more rural portions of the South, they had to bring people in from those smaller Southern towns. So you can lament this, by the way, when you're sitting in Hartsfield International Airport, you see so many people there. But FedEx feeds off that hub and spoke model. You'll see in this book that these stories are connected and say, why don't we do that for packaging? And it turned out to revolutionize our logistics world. I'm almost at time here. So let me just finish with this last two slides. 
in this last chapter or this chapter on FedEx, one of the things I'm trying to get us to understand environmentally is that most of the ways in which these companies are kind of assessing their environmental footprint is through metrics of efficiency. Here you can see it very clearly. This is their 2020 annual report. And you can see that FedEx is lauding the fact that they have reduced their aviation carbon emissions intensity by 30%. But I want you to pause for a second. When you look at this, you're thinking 30% reduction in carbon emissions, that sounds great. Professor Elmore has frozen uh, off in uh, at his office. Uh, so uh, I'm just gonna jump in for a moment and hopefully he'll come back on. Let me also just note that uh, just kind of for some up and coming things uh, that uh, uh, the History Department and the Clio Society will be doing. We'll be doing a, a great uh, talk, um, uh, I think probably in November, uh, on uh, on kind of European medieval history, uh, and which I think you might find very interesting. We'll be doing another talk uh, in January on uh, kind of Jewish war brides and the kind of history of, uh, uh, of Jewish war brides internationally, which I think will be really interesting. And we've got a lot more uh, great stuff. Uh, coming your way. The talk that Professor Elmore is giving today is one that he's uh, that is based upon this new book that he's done uh, called Country Capitalism, uh, How Corporations from the American South uh, Remade Our Economy uh, and the Planet. It comes out of um, UNC Press. It's really a great book and a very easy and, and, uh, and enlightening uh, read, an amazing way to, uh, uh, to kind of explore these stories. And there we go. I think he's back. Seems when I was I just <laughs> I was just plugging your book. So you you were mid sentence, my friend, when uh, when the lights went out on your end. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Basically, with carbon emissions intensity, uh, the the issue here is that most of these companies are using this metric of you know total greenhouse gas emissions over the revenue generated by the firm. That's what intensity means. It's a ratio. And what, what's happening is companies are saying, look, our intensity is going down by 30%. But what's happening is their revenues are often going up, which allows them in this ratio to allow their greenhouse gas emissions to go up as well. And that's the kind of greenwashing, the kind of uh, metrics of efficiency that aren't telling us the whole story. That when you actually look at the the intensity and look at absolute emissions over the same period, they're going up. And so I think you know one of the lessons of the book, and that's where I was ending, is that we really have to confront these these terms and suggest that there's better ways of showing what what's really happening, measuring our absolute emissions as opposed to our full emissions over time. So I'll pause there, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you so much for listening to me. Thank you so much for that fascinating talk. And we're glad to have you back uh, after technical difficulties. And so, uh, again, if you're interested in asking a question uh, for Professor Elmore, please uh, go ahead and pop it into the uh, into the Q&A. We've had a couple that have come in while he was talking. Uh, let me take a question that actually uh, was submitted by somebody uh, as part of registration, which is a really big one for you to kind of start on. Um, but is, so uh, I think they were reading your bio. How are sustainability and history related? Uh, how does environmental history differ from a simple exploration uh, of the past? Well, I love those questions because I frankly tell my students here at Ohio State that I don't, you know, I have a lot of students in Fisher 
that that come to our classes in environmental history. I should note that we have eight plus environmental historians in our department, uh, and thanks in part to folks like Professor Breifogel, who helped to build the program here at Ohio State. We think of ourselves as probably one of the premier places to do this kind of work. And so we're, we're really delighted that business, not only business students, but businesses have come into our classes to engage in conversations with us, because I think they recognize that sustainability, as it's often taught in business schools, is almost ahistorical. It's as if there's no backstory to how we got here. You know, there's a new technology. Great. Let's use this without kind of considering, well, how might we use history to think about whether this technology is going to work or not? And so I think that the beauty of what we're doing, I think, here in Ohio State is, is merging the fields of business and environmental history and trying to have real in real time conversations where we're, we're willing to, to meet with people that have business and say, let's let's open the hood here and look at this from a historical angle. And what lessons from the past help us think about how we can solve these sustainability problems moving forward time and time again. And I think Nick would agree with this. In our classes, we find that there are examples of, of better ways forward from the past. There are also examples of ways, things to be wary of when you think about technologies and their deployment. So the long and short of it is for anyone out there that's interested in this and has a business, for example, or wants that support, we're, we're really trying to become a place where we're open to those conversations, where we'd love to invite you in and look at, you know, we did this with Kroger recently, where we looked at kind of their their strategies, and they they opened their kind of uh, sustainability uh, metrics up to us, and then we had at it and said, well, here's some of the issues that we see from a historical angle that you might be missing, given that there's a larger, you know, there's a larger patterns that you can see when you're looking at businesses on the larger scale over time. So, um, I didn't know this existed. So for for anyone who asked that question, think, feeling like, oh, I feel like I missed something. I think this is a field that a lot of people are still learning about, but um, but we're here and we're excited to, to kind of engage in those conversations. It's a fabulous promo of what, uh, uh, what environmental history can do uh, and the insights that it can offer. Um, let me ask you two questions that have come in uh, just in, in the last uh, uh, in the last hour, one very small or one very focused, I should say, and one uh, quite a bit bigger. So the first one uh, was in the photo that you had of the uh, of, of the whole uh, kind of Coke employees standing on the steps. Uh, there's one child there uh, in in the in the front of the photo, and uh, one of the folks in the audience was really interested to know. Who, you know do you know who that that boy was? Is that boy an employee? Was that somebody who might be working there? Is it? Uh... And then the bigger question is: I mean, you you've laid out uh, all of these. Um, uh, uh, these kinds of strategies and approaches uh, to uh, uh, to kind of business historically. Um, there's also a question here: what what would a what would a model um, what kind of model would be a good strategy today? Um, the the person asking says, I hear a lot of people saying business should own the means of production. Um, what would be a good business strategy? And I would think particularly, I mean, both from a business perspective, but from an ecological perspective as well. Yeah, that's great. Um... The first, I do not have the answer. I do not know exactly who that young child is, but I will tell you that it's not surprising to me. And I think for those of us who teach American history and labor and business history, you know, we often stress that there's no fair labor and standards 
act yet passed, that would be 1938, where officially we'd see, you know, federal bans on child labor in the United States. If you think about that, 38, of course, there were exemptions, of course, for agriculture in part because of lobbying and things like that uh, for those, for those, for certain industries. So, um, you know, to look back at the late 19th century and to see this, it may be jarring for us, but in fact, uh, more common than not, in many cases, um, I'm thinking also of images I often use of textiles in the American South and how many children were often um, employed in those very dangerous jobs in those spaces. So um, in a way, I guess it seems almost quotidian to see it as a historian because it's it's a sad truth that so many children were employed and often in dangerous jobs. Um, as to the uh, as to the strategies of all this, you know, and I want to stress something that I didn't get to put a fine point on. When I say that the Amazon economy is linked to the stories that I've suggested here, I'm not trying to just say it's tangentially like they kind of did some pretty interesting things and therefore Amazon has similar models. I mean, Jeff Bezos, as I said, who started Amazon in the 1990s, He'd worked at D.E. Shaw, he, which is a, a big hedge fund manager in New York. He understood finance. He was a very smart person. I'm not trying to take credit away from him. But if you read any of his writings, he takes credit away from himself. He says, I did not build this, um, which is kind of surprising for a person who otherwise does say somewhat arrogant things like, I'm going to fly to the space and do all sorts of interesting things. But but in fact, when you look at his writings, he says, look, I I didn't build this. I built this on top of the infrastructure. And where was that infrastructure? It turns out it's in the South. You know, he goes to Bentonville in the 1990s. Uh, I was reading his stories and I was struck by this by the time I got to the end of this journey of research, how connected all these stories were to Amazon. He comes into Bentonville. He reads Sam Walton's biography. You know, he's kind of an admirer of this model. And then not only does he do that, he hires much of his original staff from Walmart because he knows that they have the skills and techniques, so much so that Walmart moves to sue them for taking their top talent. And then if you look at their first warehouse out in the Pacific Northwest, who's there at, uh, at the, the Amazon warehouse? One of the people managing it is a FedEx employee. It turns out that the model of this kind of swift delivery, let's figure out how you do it. It's nice to think of it on paper and to think Bezos kind of dreamed this up because the internet had emerged and he was there. But if you really look at the details, he's in these rural, he's in these places of the American South. He's hiring people from there because this is where it started. So back to the model, I think this was the model that made a lot of sense. But but I think it's also a model in, in a lot of ways about being a conduit of capitalism as opposed to the kind of vertically integrated model that I think the the, the questioner is right to suggest is often taught in business schools as kind of a strategy for ensuring that you're reducing your transaction costs. Um, these are all terms you know that would be used or reducing your risk in, in certain areas or um, finding ways to, to have a certain competitive advantage. But when you look at the long history of businesses in the American economy, one of the things that you see with Coke is that they have they remain KO, a stock that most people want to purchase. And one of the reasons they're so profitable even today, even though they were started in 1886, is their resiliency, the ability and nimbleness because you do not own things to be able to pivot to whatever is cheaper and more a better way to run your business. A great example is high fructose corn syrup. 
you know, what people miss when they don't understand Koch's model and they think of it as more vertically integrated, that is to say, owning and operating every aspect of the business, they forget that when high fructose corn syrup came out, Coke just pivots and they can't. They don't own sugar plantations in Brazil. They don't own sugar infrastructure. One of the great things about not owning is being able to pivot. Caffeine, you know, Monsanto was Coke's caffeine supplier in the early part of the, the 19th, uh, 20th century. They provided most of the caffeine for Coca-Cola. But then in the mid 1950s, decaf coffee took off. People got concerned about drinking too much caffeinated coffee. Where do you think all that caffeine went from decaf coffee? It turns out it went into the soft drink industry and Coke switched their contracts, some of their contracts from Monsanto to Maxwell House of General Foods. And I have this letter from Monsanto saying, whoa, 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 we've been doing business for 40 years together. What's going on? And Coke Woodruff says, you know, it's just business because that's how they pivoted. And I think yeah, you can look at U.S. Steel. You show me the profitability of U.S. Steel and some of these companies that in the 70s, when this, when a lot of these textbooks were being written, it looked like the model, vertically integrate, own and operate everything, standard oil model, own even the timber, you know, that makes the barrels that hold the oil. Yeah, do it all. Turns out, I don't know about some of those companies. Now, oil obviously still is very profitable, but a lot of the companies you'll see at the top are kind of the brokers in the economy. They're conduits. They're ones that have found a way not necessarily to make and own all the stuff, but to be kind of the channel of it. And um, so I see that as a very different model than what a lot of a lot of folks have written about. We have uh, uh, comments come in from uh, from John Pugh, who says some. Um, uh... You talked about the problem with metrics like those used by FedEx in terms of reduced carbon emissions, and that it doesn't really tell us whether gross emissions have increased or decreased. However, it seems to me, that is uh, John Pugh, uh, there is a much greater problem when talking about tons of carbon emission. That being, we have no idea of the absolute environmental impact or even relative to other companies or nations impact of those emissions. In other words, it seems to be simply a number without context. And I'm curious what your what your thoughts might be in, in response to that uh, to that comment from John. I think it's related to our upcoming trip, Nick. Uh, <laughs> Nick, Nick and I are, are part and we should just flag this because I think it's something for people to know about. We're, we're going to be leading the first um, kind of study abroad delegation of students from Ohio State to the UN Climate Summit in Dubai this year. Um, and we're, our hope is uh, to continue this process moving forward. We've been very fortunate to have the support of so many different institutions on campus um, to do this this year. But one of the things I think we're talking with the students about is, is the very limitation that you're talking about, that in part, the reporting, a lot of this is voluntary. You know, a lot of it is still, um, especially when it comes to scope three emissions, um, most companies generally just kind of balk. Like if you look at Walmart's statements about their scope three emissions, they'll say, uh, we, we can't really track them. And what are those? Well, you got your scope one emissions, which are the emissions directly associated with what you own. So like the stores and the, and the, um, the, their trucks and the emissions that they're generating Walmart itself, the scope two emissions are emissions that are associated with, uh, and this may be familiar to the questioner, but just for everyone else, Scope two is uh, associated with the energy that is being bought. So kind of indirectly, what are the emissions of, you know, is it a coal power plant that's providing the energy to your facilities? 
Scope three, though, is the bigger and most important for somebody like Walmart because it's all the emissions associated with the suppliers and they call them indirect, but it turns out that Walmart, you know, is the, the pulse, the heart that's making it all happen. And so, and you'll see in their reporting, well, we can't really track down all of our scope three emissions. It's very wishy-washy and there's nobody really holding firms accountable to ensure that we can see those full emissions. And I think it goes back to rules, needing rules. And I get that in, in uh, we think that internationally, you know, this may be impossible to start establishing firm kind of third party regulators that can come in and say, no, we want to see your emissions, show us your books and holding folks accountable for this. Right now, that's just not happening. Scope three is kind of people are saying that they're reporting it, but it's all on voluntary basis. A lot of it's very wishy-washy. And I don't think we're going to see progress, as you said, until we can start comparing and seeing and and feel and these companies feeling the pressure to be held accountable in those areas. And right now, if you can believe it, that's not how it works. Even at the climate summit, we're going to. It's all about peer pressure. It's a lot about voluntary. Um, most nations are, are providing their own voluntary kind of standards. And there's not a lot of penalties if you don't meet those standards. So um, I think we're going to be waiting for some time until we start putting some rules in place that say, no, you need to meet the standard. You know, enough about intensity. You're, we want to see those scope three emissions and we want to see what whether you're hitting them or not. I think we have uh, time to sneak in one more question. Um, and this one, I mean, has to do with um, kind of the impact of the, the the kind of history you've discovered and the story you're telling here that, you know, your goal as a historian is to be able to to help people, you know, see their work, see their way forward to a more sort of sustainable future on our planet. And I'm wondering what you would, uh, based upon what you've uh, what you found in this book, what would you say to businesses uh, and to to policymakers uh, that they should be doing moving forward in response to what you found here? One thing I'd say is that if we wait for companies to do this on their own internally, we're going to be waiting for some time. I think that's something I've learned, not just from writing this book, but for spending a, a decade and a half writing about businesses. And that's not to say that there aren't good people inside the company. Nick and I have even met some of the same people inside these companies who are, are you know, boldly committed. And, and I don't question that to sustainability and really want to do something big from inside these companies. And yet, when you talk to these folks, you can feel the pressures of that short-term quarterly kind of mindset of we've got to meet these targets. And so even though we want to do this big ambitious thing, we might just kind of, you know, do this in a piecemeal fashion. The, the reality is that right now, ESG, which gets a lot of attention, it's all voluntary. It's all by businesses making their own choices of, of how they want to commit to it and what the metrics are going to be and kind of designing those metrics in many cases themselves. The, the problem with that is that we're just not getting there. There was a study that I've often cited that came out from Bain Consulting in 2019 that said that looking at some of the top companies, 300 companies in the economy, and looking at their sustainability promises over the last several years, what's the success rate of them actually meeting their promises when it comes to environmental pledges, things like net zero, things like that. And what this study found in 2019 was that there was a 4% success rate when it came to businesses meeting their sustainability targets. That's a 96% failure rate. And if there's any students in the audience, if you get 96% of the questions wrong on the exam, I think we have to say that's an F. You know, I don't think we can kind of get there. And I think that's a product of what I said earlier, Nick, 
what I've learned is that if you don't put rules in place, and this goes to policymakers and us as citizens to vote for those policies, we're not going to get where we need to go. You have to put the pressure, the squeeze on the industry to say, you got to meet this standard. Here's the cap. Here's the line. And if you don't do that, we see this 4% success rate, which sounds good. And that's the problem. You'll read things in the Wall Street Journal and say, they promised this. And oftentimes the press will just fall away from that. It's as if they did it. You see this with Walmart a lot. They're committing to this. Woohoo! And then they're this green business. They get all these green accolades, but then they never actually do it. You'll see this in the book where they do this huge praise, press falls away. I'm still there. And I'm saying they didn't do it, you know? So I think rules in place, especially when it comes to scope three that say, here's what you can do, meet this standard or face penalties is unfortunately where we're at given the stakes of climate change. And the last thing I'll say on that is we just went to Bird Polar Center, saw the ice caps, uh, uh, cores, got to talk about the science. The pace with which this is happening is now. So we need much more aggressive policymaking. And I know we have a divided Congress, but I think we as citizens have to demand more of, to create the rules that are going to make this all work. Thank you so much, Bart. Uh, and uh, thank you all uh, in our audience for joining us today and for your excellent questions. Uh, I, I think we are grateful to Bart Elmore for sharing his expertise and the amazing stories of American business uh, and the environment. Uh, please uh, join me in giving him a virtual round of applause. Thank you, sir. Um, I'd also like to thank the College of Arts and Sciences, especially Alex Stacklane, the Department of History, the Goldberg Center, and Origins Current Events in Historical Perspective for their support. Again, many thanks to all of you for joining us today. Um, stay safe and healthy, uh, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks so very much. Goodbye. Thank you all. Bye-bye.